0: From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Shearadon. This is Playback Daily.
1: The body language says it all. Faces on them like a pair of Mona Lisas eating wasps. The
2: more I talk about it, the less it is a big dark bogeyman in the corner.
3: Giving a smartphone to a six-year-old is stupid. That's it. I'm saying it there. It's, it's, It's stupid. It's a stupid thing to do. I'm sorry. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily,
0: the artist who drew The Monk. Nora Owen on the late John Bruton and opening up about depression. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that drew the short straw. Let's begin where Oliver Callan's monologue started this morning. The Irish rugby team's victory over France
1: in Marseille on Friday. Remember the Irish bar O'Brady's, which we spoke to? Um, we spoke to Emmanuel who was in there on, on Friday morning and the Irish fans drank the place dry. That We've heard since, very responsibly, I'm sure. As you know, and the match, of course, means a whole heap of uh, Irish young fellows have landed as new sports stars. Not least Jack Crowley, who's down a, of West Cork. West Cork, not usually a, a rugby stronghold, um, shimmering away in confidence he was with the number ten on his back at the age of just twenty-four. So good things are to come. He's from a sports mad family. I was reading of the weekend. Uh, went to school and played his rugby in Bandon, uh, Bandon School, uh, grammar school, will be well known on rugby circles. Uh, but his aunt is Elaine Burke. She's a legendary figure in Cork Camogie. Uh, Elaine Burke won three All-Irelands in the noughties there. She captained one of the titles uh, for the Rebels in 2005. Uh, So that's 24-year-old Jack Crowley and of course 22-year-old Joe McCarthy with the funny hair, Uh, the the, the questionable mullet. He landed with a bang. He was man of the match. He's six six foot six, almost two metres tall, And at the end of the match, he presented his man of the match medal, very touching moment, to his brother, Andrew, who's in the crowd. And he happens to have uh, Down syndrome. Down syndrome, uh, that's Andrew, Joe McCarthy's brother. And he said it was hard to miss the brother in the crowd. This is Joe when he went to look him out because he was dressed in a suit covered in shamrocks. He said he was like a leprechaun in the crowd. So there you go. So we are expecting big things. Um, No team in the history of the Six Nations has won a back-to-back Grand Slam. So it's very much on for us. Would it make up for the World Cup horrors last October? Look, it would be great. That'll do. That'll do for us. Um No huge upsets in the GAA League of the weekend. Dublin lost again, which is always surprising. They lose. Uh, Louth beat Cork, but then they also beat Cork last year. Um And in the Premier League, the Liverpool fans, they will be upset this week. They're aghast. They lost to Arsenal. Now the title race is a 3 Three horse title with Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool all vying. Whose oil money will speak loudest? And is the Klopp era going to end in a flop? These are hard times for fans of the Liverboard uh, bird. Yeah, Liverpool's still technically top of the table on 51 points. Man City have a game at hand at 49. Lever with Arsenal, but Man City win their next match. That's at hand. They will go top by a single point. It doesn't get that that, that exciting in recent years. It's been a while, but it is only February. So uh, oil money would speak loud. Uh, oil money in terms of Man City and Arts. Of course, Liverpool owned by a well-known sports industry. Difficult times.
0: Who needs a sports correspondent? That's the weekend's sporting headlines all wrapped up nicely by Mr Callan. But all that excitement doesn't mean we've forgotten about our friends in the North.
1: There was loads of history, historical history, his momentous historical. Nothing in the North happens without it just being historical. Can just Even if it's just a dull day, it'll be just historically dull. Historically today. And um, the papers today have pictures of, I think, the two most socially awkward leaders in Europe who met in Belfast yesterday. The stock image taken human form that is Rishi Sunak met our human-like Taoiseach, um, Leo Vradker, Kothish, in Stormont. The body language says it all. Faces on them like a pair of Mona Lisas eating wasps. Of course, both men facing elections in the next year with the polls suggesting that it could end their careers. Although for Leo, sure, what's losing another election? He's become very good at it, in fairness. And uh, They were separately welcomed by First Minister, now First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, her deputy, Emma Little-Pengelly. And they gave um, Leo Varadkar a kiss, both of them. Michelle is obviously leading this charge. But no kisses for Rishi Sunak. Should we read into this? Anyway, the photos of the two leaders meeting are something to behold. Rishi Sunak, his head comes up to roughly Leo Varadkar's chin. That's being generous now these These are the proportions of these two leaders. Um, of course, they could have sat down, but nothing stops Leo from getting a photograph that makes him look ten foot tall. Remember Paul Reed and all those pictures during the during the unspeakable time? It's all very awkward. Uh, Sunak he kind of has that look in his face. you know he tries to smile, but he looks like he's just been given bad news at a chi- child's birthday party and has to keep gurning away for the photos anyway, whereas um Varadkar, sort of, he has that awkward look, that makes, he kind of looks like he's just realised that he is the bad news. But anyway, th- th- it was good news in the North and that, that's a good thing. Indeed,
0: and it is. And that shining beacon of international cooperation leads us nicely to a story that, as he did on Friday, Oliver dismantles the very notion of a monologue with. The tale of Dinny Ring, an Irishman, obviously, who seemingly went missing in Lisbon and the woman who stepped up to front the search,
1: Marta Gonzaga. How did you hear about uh, Dennis Dinny Ring? He's known here. Dennis Ring, how did you first hear about this?
4: Uh, just on Facebook. Uh, mm. Someone I know shared the post, the appeal for, for helping them to find him.
1: And straight away so, you jump into action... As you do, and we'll hear yes. more about that later. And what did you do?
4: Uh, I checked first if they already found him, because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just an effort and it's already solved. And people kept keep sharing. Yes. Uh, I check, and everyone was from abroad, or I, I saw no answers. So I I, I followed my instinct and called the hospital.
1: Very good idea. Did you? Was it easy to, to to get information from the hospital?
4: Uh, well, so it's I I, I called the the nearest hospital of the bar the was of the bar he was seen. Yes. And uh, yeah, in the emergency services, you can ask for someone's name if they entered the emergencies, but there was no one named Dennis. So I asked, "What about someone unidentified?" Mm-hmm. And they. Search for it and said, yeah, actually someone that looks foreigner, it's on the intensive care.
1: Wow. And you were able yeah. to get a photograph, show it to the hospital. Is that how?
4: No, I didn't show it to the hospital. I described it because they passed me, they connect me with, uh, with the department of no, the unit. And uh, I said, I have a picture here on Facebook. I described. And then they mentioned we have, tattoos and I said that I don't know I have to contact the family I was at the same time I was trying to reach Eileen the sister and uh, they said okay so but to proper identify we need the family to send via email uh, a picture and ID because I'm a stranger right they can't go forward than that and yeah I think it took like half an hour and everything was Yeah, everything was solved.
1: You solved the case. Uh, and Tell us exactly what you discovered because you did find Dennis uh, in this
4: hospital. Yeah, they said, so we have uh, here this person and I described the beard, the the, the tone of the skin, the eyes and um, all I knew was in intensive care. They didn't tell me about it, of course. Uh, And that's it, I knew where he was, I could tell the family I didn't want to say nothing before because it's horrible when you receive false hopes. Yes. But, um, yeah, and then was it was solved because it was a happy moment to know that he was alive and they knew where he was.
1: Incredible. They were very, very grateful to you, Marta, and so well done for cracking the <laughs> they case. They're amazing. Really?
4: <laughs> they are all amazing. Yeah, and all the Irish community, I, I've, been receiving uh, messages and support it's, it's really lovely yeah.
0: Good Samaritan Marta Gonzaga talking to Oliver Callan about her fine works on behalf of missing Irishman Dinny Ring. You might think that that's where we're going to end our dip into the Oliver Callan monologue but wait no we need to deal with the Grammys as well.
1: You might have noticed the Grammys were held indeed and all the usual suspects. They won things. Taylor Swift uh, became the first artist to win four Best Album Awards. And she she used her Best Album speech to not only ignore Celine Dion, who made a surprise uh, appearance, but announce a new album. And um, so she couldn't even accept an award without selling more stuff to her fans, even after charging the Children of Ireland I think 700 euro for a seat in Croke Park. But she does do a good tune in fairness to her. Her new album will be out in April. It's called The Tortured Poets Department. Says all the poets of Ireland, Taylor, there's no other kind of poet. Tay other than the tortured kind. So that's what she was up to. Yes, the headline grabbing moments were appearances by the veterans. Celine Dion, uh, she's quit performing in the meantime, so far she had to quit a whole tour last year because she's battling a rare uh, stiffness syndrome and so she surprised everyone by appearing on the stage and she did extraordinarily well. Joni Mitchell also performed. She's the age of 80 now and her voice was frail because, um, but it was miraculous to see her because she suffered a brain aneurysm in 2015. She had to completely relearn how to uh, play the guitar again. So it was a joy to see her do anything and she was there with a bunch of musicians and there was a touching tribute to Sinead O'Connor by Annie Lennox and uh, at the end of the song there was an image of Shane McGowan shown to the assembled A-listers. Let's have a little taste of Annie Lennox very emotionally uh, singing Sinead O'Connor's the best known hit of Sinead O'Connor for the American audience.
5: Nothing can take away this blue Nothing compares
2: nothing compares to you.
1: Ah, I was beautiful. Danny Lennox there Uh, what else was happening there Jay Z sort of let himself down he was there presented award and started complaining that Beyonce she's won 32 Grammys more than anyone but all sort of itty bitty Grammys never album of the year so we had a pop at that Uh, these are the egos you're dealing with you know you've got tens of millions you're one of the most influential musicians in the world what more do you want uh, Trevor Noah he restored the honour of awards host show hosts as well he did a good job mentioned Taylor Swift she arriving late and said that she'd improve the economy of each table as she walked by which is a nod to um, her era's tour and how it's restored the fortunes of some of the cities that they go to Meryl Streep was there and everyone's wondering why on earth is Meryl Streep uh, doing at the Grammy this is for music you, you're, you should be at the Oscars and all that well her daughter is married to Mark Ronson the famous producer of course who made Amy Winehouse famous but he's also done lots of things Miley Cyrus albums and he's just mixed the barbie soundtrack so that's what he was doing there just got
0: to stop oliver's morning monologue there because the next bit is all about the tracy chapman luke combs duet on fast car but hop over to youtube and watch it it's lovely i'll wait for you here don't worry the announcement of the death of former Taoiseach John Bruton was made this morning, and Colm Mungon, sitting in for Clare Byrne, spoke about the former Fine Gael leader with former Deputy Fine Gael leader, Nora Owen. He
6: he was an, an unusual uh, figure in, in Irish politics, I, I suppose. He he was a, a Fine Gael leader that entered a rainbow coalition unexpectedly with a uh, democratic left, maybe not so unexpectedly with Labour, with whom there had been a long-standing, I suppose, coalition yeah. relationship in the past, but what personal skills did he have? Because it, it, it was said he got on particularly well with Pruncius de Rosa, which was, a, and I suppose, an unexpected development over the lifetime of that government. Pruntius de Rosa, uh, the then leader of, uh, of democratic left.
7: Yes, indeed. But I mean, if you look back at John's career, I think he went in when he was like in his very early twenties into the doll, and then he became, you know, through a long career, ministers for, you know, finance in what departments that have now changed their names, but industry and commerce and industry and energy, and he he honed his political skills over a long number of years. and um, But he he was a man of his own way. He knew what he wanted to achieve. He set about achieving things that perhaps other people might have kind of let somebody else do. And he was always on the go. He, he never stopped thinking and Designing and revising policy and getting himself moving on. And I was so happy. I became his deputy leader in 1993 and I was so happy for him that he achieved uh, becoming Taoiseach in 94. It was slightly unexpected because of the breakup of the government between Labour and Fianna Fáil. And that was on and then it was off and then it, and then it was off fully. It looked as if it was going to last. And then John became Taoiseach. And I think that was the crowning glory I suppose of his career having spent so long in the in the in the doll. And um, I was very honoured to be his deputy leader during that time, and close to the ups and downs that politics brings to everybody's life. But John was was an extra special person who really thought about what was good for the country and what would would be good for the children of the country. I mean, it was extraordinary. He would come up in the morning early and say, I thought about this last night, or I thought about this yesterday, and we've got to do this, or we've got to do that. and he would set about to try and make improvements to our lives.
6: And in 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 dealing with the the lifetime of that Rainbow Coalition government, there was, a, I suppose, yes. the beginning, the nascent seeds of what would later go on to become the Celtic Tiger. Uh, during yes. that time, maybe not as many. Uh, choices available to the government in terms of spending as as came later. There was also the peace process which was ongoing at that time and the breakdown of the first IRA ceasefire. And and the government came into being in pretty challenging times. So there was a lot to deal with.
7: So that December, you know, when, when uh, the Labour Party broke up with Fianna Fáil, like, it was a big decision for John to um, form a government because, of course, in 92, he had decided he didn't want to go into government with the with the democratic left. And by 94, though, he had changed his mind. And what he changed his mind, No? You know, um, I, I suppose um, he, he looked at how democratic left were dealing with the issues in the doll, and how they themselves had changed as well. And he felt he could work with them. And in fact, you're absolutely right. He worked very closely with with uh, de Terrassa, In fact, sometimes they would write that he was closer with Pruncius than he was with Dick Spring. But I mean, the coalition worked very well. Um, I remember at meetings, and John was always fair at meetings to make sure the three sets of ministers got their say, as it were, and um, he was very supportive of me. It was a difficult time in justice because the economy was beginning to lift. So uh, he was very supportive of the, of the Fine Gael ministers we used to meet before the cabinet meeting, and we would go through the issues, which I think I'm sure is still happening with any coalition government. And um, so he, he he got on very well with Pontius, and he recognised that Pontius was um, a good politician and was was caring in his social welfare department and uh, we that government worked very well and remember too we'd had you know very bad times through the 80s e- economically by the 90 middle 90s things were beginning to lift again and of course with regard to Northern Ireland John worked closely with John Major and at times I feel he didn't get the kind of recognition for getting the talks going in the north with George Mitchell that that was a very crucial part of what we have today now, uh, the, the North in the peaceful times he worked with John Major um, uh, we got We got George Mitchell into the chair, and that was really what led ultimately to the Good Friday Agreement. without that chairmanship of George Mitchell and uh, the the work that John Major and John Bruton did together they weren 't together for that long because there was a change of government, and Mo Molin came in then and but John was absolutely crucial, I believe, in making sure that when the Good Friday meeting when the Good Friday Agreement came that both sides, as, as it were, agreed to it. You know, he Good. always spoke up about the need for us not to coerce the unionists into anything. And he was proven Right.
6: Can I ask you just personally, because uh, during the, the lifetime of the Rainbow Coalition, when you were Justice Minister, uh, Fianna Fáil mounted a, a, a quite a robust attack on the justice portfolio through their then front bench spokesperson, uh, John O'Donoghue, against you in, in the justice seat. But personally, as a colleague, as a Taoiseach, uh, was, was John Br- Bruton supportive to you when you were in the middle of that firestorm?
7: Yes, he was very supportive, and I, I you know, behind the scenes, I, I, I you know, you wouldn't have, it wouldn't be the kind of thing you would have talked about publicly then. But behind the scenes, he, he was very supportive, and he was very anxious to get to grips with with the way in which our society was being absolutely damaged so badly by drugs, by criminal activities, um, and when when we got to the point in '96 where. Veronica Gearan and uh, Jerry McCabe were both murdered and um He was absolutely 100% behind the the setting up of the Criminal Assets Bureau and, and helped me in whatever way he could and was of great help to me. Remember, he had a lot more experience even than I did at that stage. And we talked often about it. We met as a group in Cabinet to talk about the development of the Criminal Assets Bureau with the Guard, the Commissioner, with Senior Guards, and got well briefed on what was happening in our society. And John was in there. Um, he, he, he liked to be involved, you know, in, in, in when you were making new policy, and that's how the Taoiseach should be. Nice. Remember, Taoiseachs don't have a, a, a specific portfolio. They are in charge of everything. So he kept very much in touch with me all through that time. And, of course, I, I was on the Special Security Committee in Cabinet, dealing with the north as well and then I was up during the talks in the early part of the talks. Okay. Um, and, John, and John would again brief us before we would go up you know to make sure that we were all talking uh, on the same together. page.
0: Former Deputy Fine Gael Leader Nora Owen talking to Colm O'Mungon about the former Taoiseach John Bruton whose death was announced this morning. In the absence of the other guy who used to be on in the mornings and who used to rant a lot about the evils of technology, Ray Darcy jumped into the gap after he heard a report on Morning Ireland.
3: I saw that today and I heard it on Morning Ireland. I thought, that must be a mistake. One in four six-year-olds have mobile phones. When I heard it, I said they must must have access to. They must have access. Maybe that's what the survey says, that one in four, six-year-olds have access to a mobile phone, as in their parents' mobile phones. And I said, oh yeah, that, that's, I misheard that. Because you'd be doing, you'd be, you know, trotting around the kitchen and doing whatever you're doing and you wouldn't be paying full attention to Morning Ireland. You don't sit down and take notes. Uh, but then there was a package and they said it again. One in four, six-year-olds have mobile phones. And then it's in all the papers today, front page of the Daily Mail. What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> It it it's mad as if, as if people aren't listening to what you know. These are harmful things. Ultimately, they are harmful, uh, and yet we are giving them to six year olds. I I I I actually don't understand. And then fifty percent of parents say they don't know how to keep their children safe. There's loads of things going on, of course. There, there's loads of things going on. When you think about it, it's only twenty years since Facebook was set up. So things have happened at a breakneck speed over the last twenty years. Uh, and, and that little thing that we all have in our pocket, in our hand, it's a, it's a very powerful computer. And in the hands of a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, well, there's, there's potential for bullying. I see that half of children in America have been bullied, in some shape or form, through their mobile phones, their mobile devices. Uh, and then we don't know what the long-term effects of it. There's this insidious effect, negative effect on mental health. The fact that you're staring into a screen... The, the fact that you're com- comparing constantly and then despairing because the world that people present through their mobile phones is not their real world. It's, it's a, a curated sort of shiny version. And other people look at it and go, oh, my life isn't like that. They, oh, that, that. they get depressed and that's that's bad. And we, we don't know. We, like we're sleepwalking into, I think, an epidemic uh, of mental health problems. Uh, and we'll be saying in years to come, we didn't do enough it happened on our watch. We were parents at the time and we didn't act. Everybody was telling us to act. The people who own the big tech companies don't let their children get involved and we didn't listen. That, that's... And then, of course, there's the very practical thing of eating up time, valuable time, where you can be playing sports or being active, or being creative or reading a book and they all... Now, that's there are positives you know, like there's no doubt that technology has embellished our worlds and there are things like, for example, you can hold a car, you can hold your phone up to a piece of type thing and it'll present it as a, you know, a document and you can then change the, like mad stuff. It's like, and then AI, obviously it's going to help in medicine, all those things. There's loads of positives, but there's loads of negatives as well. Uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm ranting now. I... I thought there was hope because I read there um, in October or November of last year that 33 states in America are taking Meta, as in Facebook, as in Mark Zuckerberg, to court uh, because they're saying that the stuff, Instagram, Facebook, all that, uh, it's harmful uh, and that the company is using uh, addictive methods to make sure that children and people stay on screen time longer. Uh, so that's ongoing. So I thought that that's, that's sort of reassuring. Um, and I, I see as well that he was brought in front of one of those uh, Congress Congressional committees last week. Keith Duggan was writing about it in The Times and there were families of children who had lost their lives as a direct result of social media, whether it was some sort of TikTok thing or whether it was because they were bullied and they eventually took their own lives in there. And he faced them. He didn't apologise to them, but he faced them. Uh, but 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 then he's going. He's he's in his head. Mark Zuckerberg. He knows he's right. Always right. It's all about profit. He's bigger than any congressional hearing. He he's bigger than the United States of America. I was just reading here, like for example, Meta, YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, and X made about eleven billion um, on the back of targeted advertising to their younger users. Uh, that's in a piece by Alex Cooney, who's the CEO. Um, of cyber safe kids, and, and that's all. Those statistics are from their report today. Um, so so what what do we do? What do we we have to get tough with tech companies, and you see they have the law on their sides, uh, both in the states and over here as well, uh, because they are not responsible for what's on their platforms. So, if I got on here today and said something endorse some product that was like snake oil, then. I'd be brought in front of the BAI, could lose my job, definitely will get told off. However, however, if the same thing happens on uh, Instagram or Facebook or X, nothing happens. They're not responsible. They're not publishers. And we've been saying that for a long time now and still things haven't changed. And how do you hurt them? Because when you're when you're when you're making billions and billions and billions and you've been fined millions and millions and millions, you know, you just go, yeah, it's just like bit of fluff on your shoulder and you just shrug your shoulders and move on Um, yeah you you think you think at this stage they're reading the same stuff that we're reading they know that they're harmful and indeed they've admitted uh, that their their platforms are harmful and yet they're not doing anything about it uh, but definitely uh, as parents we have a responsibility uh, to mind our children protect them and giving whether you like it or not giving a smartphone to a six year old is stupid that's it I'm saying it there it's, it's, it's stupid it's a stupid thing to do I'm sorry there you go Ah Ray don't beat around the bush tell us what you really think
0: The Ray Darcy Show host telling it like it is when it comes to six year olds owning smartphones this afternoon or any afternoon Back on Oliver Callan, courtroom artist Mike O'Donnell has witnessed some of the biggest trials this century. His new exhibition is called Released and it's running in St John's Theatre and Art Centre in Listowel. Mike spoke to
1: Oliver this morning. Tell us about Released, is the name of this court. They're court portraits, are they? Yeah, so um, it's, it's I
8: suppose it's work based on the last year and a half or so from the courts. Yeah, and it it comprises uh, essentially um, work starting with the Regency trial, and that that involves, of course, um, Jerry Hutch uh, the Monk. Yeah, and it also includes specific portraits of um, a certain number of characters, including himself, plus Martin, first a former local TD here, mm-hmm. um, Art Lean, who's who is I suppose more an electronic friend but also a friend who visited me during the summer so he sat for me and a few others um, Brendan Graham features He's a barrister uh, Sean Galland they're all senior counsel and also senior of course Roisin Lacey who's, uh, um, who, who features as well
1: so, They prosecuted uh, that Regency Hotel uh, trial case as well
8: Yeah well Sean Galland did uh, senior oh. counsel and Brendan Graham defends mm-hmm. and also, there's uh, work from the, push, the recent, very sad uh, Pushka trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so that features as well, especially the sentencing.
1: And the um, Ashley Murphy, obviously, the victim. That's
8: the Ashley Murphy yeah, case. Very sad.
1: You work in, under very grim circumstances when you're doing your <laughs> art. I mean, do, do you put it away in your mind? How, how do you operate when you're drawing? Oh, um, good. Well, um, well, I find it. Um,
8: very first of all very interesting. I think most people would find would find find court reporting and say the reportage very interesting. And um I I I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um mm. it's very dynamic, it's very tense and you really have to up your game when you're inside there. And in order to up my game, um I my my say my um precision say, I'll use ink um, so there's no way back, you know. So it's like Kerry and Monaghan that match, you know, the last Sun last Sunday. Like you're kind of really, you know, you have to be in your in top form. You can't be bringing out your, you have to bring out your best players, you know. So so that's the way I work, and um, I try not to make mistakes. But I I kind of I suppose like I suppose like maybe yourself, you know, when you're performing, you're um, you have to put away all the kind of. Uh, pressures you that
1: you zone in, you zone in,
8: yeah, yeah, you just go off and do it and yeah, take no notice,
1: you know. Mike, how important are these images? Because we read about the cases and they can seem cold and dry on paper, but when we see a drawing of someone who's in the dock, uh, it yeah. conveys the emotion, doesn't it? Is that how you feel about it? Yeah, so
8: so the exhibition was opened by uh Jim Sheridan and he he mentioned that you know, that the court artist, um he says conveys the emotion I, I I think it does and it goes there's no other visual representation of what goes on in court so um, as a working court I, I kind of I'm aware of the say the responsibility and the insight that it provides people who are, can only rely otherwise on the reporting say and uh, it's absolute for me it's absolutely an'm absolutely privileged and it's fascinating for me that through my hand, people can see, um, get, a, get a kind of a glimpse of the, the emotion and the atmosphere and tension and um, drama that goes on. And it's not, it's not like it's, it's real stuff. You know, it's not. It is, yeah. It's not uh, made-up stuff. It's like real drama and people's lives are so, so at stake. You know, their futures and their. Uh, it's, it's like, it's, it's like it's real-life drama. Mm. You know, so. I'm very privileged to be part of
1: that, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, because obviously you read about people, it's easy to dismiss uh, people who carry out horrific, particularly murders that exercise the whole country, that they're monsters and they're evil. But actually, sometimes I think you're portraying that they're these are human beings who've done terrible things and this is the yeah. system of justice bringing them to account. There's something quite profound about it. Um, yeah. Jerry Hutch, the monk, who's obviously a gangland figure, you, um, you, you got him to sit for a portrait after one of his many cases. He's obviously was cleared in the most recent one, that special criminal court case on the Regency trial. How did that come about? Him sitting for, with you for a portrait. Uh, so um, I
8: drew him quite a number of times before Christmas. Before the, you know, during the trial that went on for like I don't know fifty or sixty days. Really. And but unfortunately, all I ended up in hospital for two weeks because I was septic and. Or sorry for two months, and mm. um, that took a toll on me. You know, so when I came out, I I was. He had asked me for a copy of of work that I did through his legal team. Right. And um, so when I came out of hospital and everything was done and dusted, and I was recovering, I, I hoped to um, sit with him because I had this. I've been through a few say near near death experiences. And so there's kind of an urgency in my work. And um, I wasn't going to wait around for a few years, um, you know, to do this. I, I said once I recovered, I'd attempt to draw him, um, seriously draw him and sit him down, you know. So I found myself in my in his um, sitting room, uh, you know, around autumn. And um, I spent a few hours with him. And he was, um, I found him very normal, friendly, but, but charismatic man and very proud of his, his roots and origin, his locality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, was, he, he understood my needs, you know, as I, I said before, like as an artist and, you know, uh, posed for me and we had a very good time and very productive time. So a lot of the work that I have in the exhibition, about, I think about 16 pieces are actually out of the 26 relate to him um, so they're very, very intimate. And I hope, like, the purpose of my art is to move minds and spirits. And if the viewer kind of uh, looks at these drawings, um, I hope that they see the, as you say, say the person. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're human beings. It's not the. I, I try I to go beneath the, the actual what I'm drawing, just go into the person if I can possibly do that.
0: That's courtroom artist Mike O'Donnell talking to Oliver Callan this morning about drawing Jerry the monk, Hutch. Mike's exhibition, Released, is currently running in St. John's Theatre and Arts Centre in (music) Listowel. Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, the Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport, joined Colm O'Mungon in studio this morning to talk about Dublin Airport, and the restrictions on passenger
6: numbers Ryanair's Michael O'Leary's been giving out about. Well, let's just go through the, through the, some of the, the, the things that were said on this programme last week by Michael O'Leary. He says that uh, aviation accounts for 2% of European emissions. Airports are going to get more, airplanes are going to get more fuel efficient. Emissions from fuel will improve.
5: Uh, and that is almost an area which will look after itself my understanding Europe in 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 europe aviation counts for 4% and that's before you actually count for that's just on on co2 there are other impacts of aviation which makes it higher so aviation is going to have to play its part there's no opt out first two first principles here in my mind in terms of how we address this firstly is we have to move away from just this being the consumer responsibility, putting all the shame or blame on the individual in terms of, are you using the right uh, is that coffee cup the right thing or, or, or should you be flying at all? And like a lot of people are saying they will fly less for climate reasons and that's absolutely right and valid. But I don't think politically or indeed policy wise we will address this by putting turning it all into a moral uh, imperative that forces people to fly okay, or not well, to fly. Your, your colleague
6: here on co writing in the Irish Times says today, continue Continued failure to hold the aviation industry to account for the emissions it produces emboldens operators and airlines alike to plan their operations in blind pursuit of economic gain. When he talks about holding the
5: aviation industry to, uh, to account, whose job is that? its job of the political system. And second point, if I can, the principle. So first principle is we need system change, not put all the responsibility on the consumer. The second principle is no one opts out. There's no sector that opts out. And agriculture are rightly saying at the moment, well, you're putting all the pressure on us, but what about aviation? The way, the scale of the change we need to make based on the science, which is so clear, Every sector needs to play its part. You say
6: the political system, it's the job of the political system to hold the aviation industry to account. You're the transport minister. What are you doing to hold the aviation industry to account on its emissions?
5: Well, first, the aviation sector itself, including Ryanair, has recognised we do have a real problem here. And they have committed Ryanair and other European airlines to be part of the solution by being net zero in 2050. Less than by 25, 26 years time. The political system job is to work out. So how do we do that? What's the way to do it? I'm um, just to go into some of the details here because it is important to people get it right. Aviation, if you look back the last 25 years, just equivalent, it has in Dublin Airport tripled in across Europe, quadrupled. There have been a lot of efficiency gains, as Michael O'Leary said last week, roughly 50% more efficient. That was mainly because bigger, bigger number of seats, better planes, engine improvements and so on. The improvements to 2050, the large best way of us doing the system change we need to meet our climate change ambitions will be the switch from using fossil fuels to sustainable aviation fuels. There are two types of those. The first type will be the development using biofuels, but that is very limited. It's limited because there's only so much land use as you could end up where you'd be chopping down rainforests to provide fuel for aviation. That would not work. So that will provide a certain amount. But the actual bigger amount, the bigger development to make aviation part of the solution will be the use of what's called e-fuels or e-kerosene. And that will be combining hydrogen from renewable power mixed with carbon, which we would have to collect. And that is where the political system comes in. So so in Europe, what we've said is last year, we set mandates that by 2030, you have to have 6% sustainable aviation fuels. By 2050, it's going up to 70%. Right. And included within that also targets for the development of these new e-fuels. All right. Well, you, you And you, that you. is the way that we can and will have to decarbonise aviation. It's very complex. It's only starting. It hasn't really started in effect yet. But it is going to force the industry by mandates to adopt those fuels. Right. And that is the way I believe that we will make the way forward and where the political system has a key role. And where the overwhelming... Weight of people in the country
6: live in the Greater Dublin area, in, in terms of the, the the critical mass of, of where people are living, and, and given how the population has risen in that area over the last number of decades. Does it make sense to to raise the, the cap on aviation in Dublin Airport because uh, on arguing the other side in that same page in the Irish Times today Andrea Carl who's group head of sustainability at the Dublin Airport Authority says a national airport that is not allowed to grow will hugely damage Ireland's ability
5: to attract investment from overseas well first uh, to understand the cap and again to explain this. The reason the cap was introduced by Umbore Panola, it was a condition set out in the development of the second terminal, terminal two, the new terminal. Although there had actually been serious concerns prior to that, even in the building of Terminal 1. But the cap was put in place for one main reason, that the road network around the airport cannot, or they projected, could not cope if we just had ever increasing growth. Michael O'Leary was wrong when he said that, oh, well, things have changed since then. We built, we widened the M50. We knew back in 2007 when the cap was put in place that the M50 was going to be widened and all the analysis was already there to tell us that both the M1, the main road out in the front of the airport and the M50 were going to be at full capacity. And adding additional cars to such a road network would actually affect an impact and make sure it right, didn't so, work for everyone. So the,
6: so the cap is in place partially because of infrastructural deficiencies outside of Dublin Airport, which are not the fault of Dublin Airport. Does True. government have a case to answer for not having the infrastructure in place that would allow better connectivity from the airport to the city centre, for example?
5: Yes, I've been involved in transport campaigning and policy making in this city for 35 years. I remember back in the late 90s, we, the platform for change, it was the plan for transport for Dublin. I remember the engineers and the planners at the time saying, whatever you do, build the metro first, don't widen the M50 first. Unfortunately, previous government made a decision to widen the M50 first and not build the metro. We do need the metro. It is coming. It will go to planning this month. It goes to the oral hearing. I expect that we, we will get a decision this year on that and we will start going into building it because we do need it, not just for the airport, but for the development of All the right. city.
0: Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport Talking to Colm O'Mungo this morning about the cap on passengers at Dublin Airport and the long-rumoured, never-realised Dublin Metro. Yeah, believe it when you see it. Last year, Jimmy Keary suffered from a very severe bout of depression and anxiety, things he'd never suffered from before then. Jimmy spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline to share his experience.
2: I've started talking about my depression in the last few weeks to people, okay. and i find it I find it very helpful to me because the more I talk about it, the less it is a big, dark bogeyman in the corner, and I know it's not easy for people to talk, but mm-hmm. if they can find a friend, a family member, or whatever to talk to, to let that person into your life so that if they see you maybe looking not well or whatever, that they won't be afraid to ask you what's wrong. Like, I've found out since I started telling people I was depressed last year, people have said to me, oh, you looked awful, look, and we were worried about you. But yet nobody said anything to me. Okay. Which mm. uh, people, people don't like to intrude. Mm. But if you open the door to people, then they'll feel free to... keep your health in mind, like to talk to you, uh, they won't be afraid. So that's kind of my message. Um, It started last year. I wasn't feeling well. I wasn't feeling kind of my usual self. I'm a writer and I was working on a new play. And normally I'm very sort of disciplined when I'm working on a play. Like I write something every day and, and correct and different things. But I began to notice that I was losing my focus and that maybe a week could go by and I wouldn't have written anything or two weeks or maybe mm-hmm. not even want to write. Yeah. And then during the summer or late kind of maybe it was May, June, um, well I, I had problems with a roof, a leaking roof, and also with a stove that was kind of on its last legs. Now I suppose people listening are saying well, they wouldn't be real problems, like if you had problems trying to pay a mortgage or health problems or marriage issues or whatever. But everything is sort of how you look at it. And like a couple, a married couple, or if you have a partner or whatever, dealing with a problem, they can talk about it. But I had no one to talk to, so all my discussions were inside my head. And molehills can become mountains and I'm a warrior anyway, like my mother was a warrior, Lord mercy on her, and I had an aunt who was also a warrior, and when I was about twelve a lady said to my mother that he's like my daughter, he sees worry before it comes at all. So with me I just tend to worry about things and all this kind of got out of proportion in my head and kind of every waking moment was kind of focused on my problems. And then the bad weather, the rain and the dark, you know, the dark days yeah, last yeah. summer, it wasn't a great summer. I wasn't able to be out and cutting grass and doing hedges and stuff that I'd normally be doing. And so I i wasn't eating. I got into a state where my throat muscles weren't able to cope with food. If I had to chew anything for a long period in my mouth, I'd start to reach Um, So I had to kind of take soft food. I had to go from taking toast in the morning to taking soft bread. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was very restless at night. I might sleep for an hour or two and then be awake around one o'clock and not go back to sleep anymore. I could be up at four or five o'clock making the bed again. Uh, So then when I got up in the morning, then I had no energy. Uh, I had no interest in anything. Um, I was listless, restless. Um, I didn't want to see anyone if I went out shopping or maybe out for something to eat, I was hoping I wouldn't meet anyone I knew because I didn't want to be rude to them. Like, they'd come up to you and they'd be talking like as usual. But I had a tired brain. It it kind of... I wasn't able to kind of process what people were saying to me and then kind of formulate a reply. And, like, it's not like me. As you can probably hear by now, I can't stop talking.
3: And,
1: uh, Jimmy, did, did... You, were you, looking back on that period, were you aware yourself that you were unwell?
2: Oh, I knew I wasn't well. I mean, I knew I was living a kind of groundhog mm-hmm. day. I was living the same day over again. And a few times, like before, going to bed at night, you know, you kind of wish you wouldn't wake up in the morning. Okay. It was that bleak. Mm-hmm. And and, no, and I I'm to say nobody to talk to about it, but I didn't really want anyone to talk to about yeah, it. But yeah. People, somebody would ring me up and say, well, we'll call to see you. And I'd say, well, I'm not feeling very well. And that was kind of, I, I didn't go any further than that because I didn't really know what was wrong with me. Just that I wasn't in the mood for company. And um, I'll never forget my doctor, the lady doctor, Um First of all, when she gave me the diagnosis that I was suffering from depression and anxiety, I felt ashamed. And I want to apologise to fellow sufferers. That's not how I feel now. But my shame came from ignorance. And I had associations of uh, depression with tranquilizers and different sort of medications and maybe mental hospitals. And, you know, I was just totally... Uh, I was on the wrong road altogether. And I remember having to make a difficult call to a member of the family just to tell them I was suffering from depression and it was yeah. one of the hardest phone calls I had to make. And...
7: and what... The th- n- n- not in that particular case, Jimmy, obviously, with your relation, but what generally
1: would people say to you when you say you're suffering with depression?
2: Well, now... It's funny, but people tell you... Some people have told me, like, that they suffer similarly... Like when they get an opening and hear me talking about depression, they'll come to me and say, or you know, they'll they'll answer by saying, we suffer that way too. Yeah. Um, They're just waiting for an opening. And normally in a conversation, in a day-to-day conversation, we live such fast lives and rushing everywhere, that people don't have time for proper chats. It's kind of, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. And move on. But if you actually stop to talk to people... And like I've become so much more positive since I went on the medication. And I, if I'm in a supermarket, if I'm in a queue in the supermarket, if there's somebody in front of me who catches my eye or behind me, I start a conversation with them. And obviously, yeah. hmm. if they don't want to talk, then I won't push it. But you can have five or ten minute conversations with people while you're waiting to move along a queue. And the same if I'm at a coffee machine or tea machine making... A, a cup of tea uh, you know I, I'll strike up a conversation and if the people are approachable then we talk and I find it's great to talk even if not about depression but just great to talk to people Of it is
0: Jimmy Keery talking about his experience of depression to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line Finally on this edition of Playback Daily author Roisin McGuire spoke to Oliver Callan about her new book Night swimmers.
1: Just before we get into the actual story, I mean when you told the publisher you want to set a novel in lockdown, they must have looked at you and said, Roshin, you're mad.
9: At the time, absolutely. A lot of difficulty in, in the setting and the look, you know, the time. But then when you think back to war stories War film, very close to the time that would have been a difficult subject to approach. Good but point. now coming out of lockdown, people are interested again. It's, there's almost a safe distance. I know for a lot of people it was a time of profound loss, profound change, just the same as my characters found in Night Swimmers. But after a while, there's an interest there because everyone's lives changed mm. and they've changed and stayed changed. And the folk in the, in the novel, I suppose, just exemplify what we all went through. We all had to sort of adapt. And like it or not, things will never be the same again.
1: I mean, I approached it thinking, I don't want to read about lockdown. This is, uh... But it's, it's set in such a beautiful place.
9: That's right, yeah. And
1: then I was able to kind of feel as though, no, this all happened to other people. A
9: little <laughs> bit of a distance to it. Yeah, perhaps. like
1: your war thing that you're talking about. It didn't happen to us, it happened to someone else. Uh, so the location is important. Could, can you describe Ballyhorn and that ho- whole area to us? Because it's important to the story.
9: Sure, yes. It's a, a wonderful uh, East Coast location. Mm. It is um, sheltered to a certain extent. By the Isle of Man you've got that you can see out on a lovely morning and uh, we have an island just in front. You may remember that, all: yes, from your what walk. Yes, that's why I thought it
1: was so lovely and calm. Absolutely. Yeah.
9: Guns Island, where 52... Pirates were sunk many hundreds of years ago, and loads of guns buried. So that's the lore, anyway. Whether it's true or not, absolutely. And the Isle of Man
1: seems very close.
9: It does. It seems closer than it is.
1: Freakishly close. Difficult to get to it. (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't fancy that. I'm sure.
9: Yes.
1: (laughs) Grace would swim to it, though. She'd
9: love to have done. I just loved the way she took the water as a form of healing. I think that was the (laughs) important thing. You know, she was always in the water, and I think nowadays with the with the growth in interest in outdoor swimming. Men, women and children all jumping into the tide. (laughs) It's a very sort of irrelevant thing. She's no fan
1: of these uh, townies who come down in their dry robes swimming.
9: I think she's like everyone else. Everyone (laughs) who has something that they love wants to keep it to their own selves. (laughs) 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 And the sad lesson Grace has to learn in Night Swimmers is that the world belongs to everybody. Mm -hmm. Nature belongs to everybody and everyone should be able to access it. And I think that's a real message. From the pandemic, the importance of getting into nature. You'll know that yourself for if sure, you've been yeah, to Ballyhorn yeah. and all those beautiful places. It's for everyone. It should be honoured by everyone. And the more our children enjoy it and experience it, the more they'll cherish and look after it. Because I want to know Ballyhorn is still there being looked after my, by my granddaughter, Nula when she's my age.
1: And it's quite a rural setting, so it's... um there's obviously a shop here and there, so? That? there's an effort questioned. at a shop
9: now and then but unfortunately it doesn't thrive in the novel I give it an awful lot of business unfortunately it doesn't seem to get the same amount in now, real life
1: now Grace isn't that old she's she's about 50 I think is that? she's yes that's described?
9: right there was a bit of tweaking to be done in Night Swimmers Grace is 50 she started off about 60 odd and the whole writing process you'll probably know yourself is about finding what the characters want to do
1: oh so she de-aged along the way
9: she de-aged I and wish I could
1: she's a bit of an oddball Uh, uh, She's seen as an oddball in the area.
9: Yes, and I think uh, that's one of the strong points of her. You know, she is she's refusing to be what everyone expects her to be, to be quiet. Mm. There's a lovely quote, Dr Sharon Blackie says, there's a perverse beauty as well as a sense of rightness in refusing to be quiet and diminish. So she's doing that. She's refusing to be quiet and diminish. She's being her own self. Until, like the pandemic happened to us all, She's thrust into relationships. We can't live on our own.
1: She's kind of a sweary, huckleberry Finn character. Absolutely. Don't you like (laughs) it? uh, It's being translated into the
9: German and I don't know how they're going to manage with Ah, some of it. They (laughs) love it. Yeah, because of the
1: naked swimming. The Germans (laughs) Germans will be mad for it.
9: (laughs) Go for it. Well, you've dropped one there. She definitely does go (laughs) naked swimming, the naughty woman. Shouldn't be added.
1: That's the night swimming uh, element of the whole thing. Uh, So who does she come into contact then
9: she comes into contact with Evan, who's a townie with a past. He is suffering from family tragedy and he too feels he has to separate. And it's the whole idea of the separation that happened in pandemic. The the liminality of being adrift between one life and the next, almost like a bardo, you know, like a an in-between space. And the larger. two of them connect, yin and yang, and their little and Evan's little son as well, um, who has his own. and become a more, I suppose, cohesive unit because of their separation in the past, their distance from people. It's a story about humanity, how we can't live on our own. We think we have it sorted. Grace did, and Uh, she certainly didn't.
1: And the local villagers who um, don't seem to do social distancing very well at all.
9: It's a hoot, yes, I know. the pub
1: that never really closed.
9: Yes, yes. I don't know how many listeners will be familiar with some of those things that happened, but um, I just thought, you know, let's tell it the way people experienced it where I was. Not necessarily yes, okay. directly where yeah. I was, but in lots of rural areas there were different perceptions. We were made to make it up as we went along, essentially to yeah. a great extent, weren't we? Well,
1: the, the, the rules seemed to be for cities, didn't they? And suddenly you're going, but I'm out here on my own, and I, well, should I, I couldn't be more socially distant.
9: If I tried, absolutely, I'm <laughs> standing of... on an island, <laughs> miles away from anyone. With,
1: again, these are the subjects I'm kind of thinking: Do we really want to have those? Do we want to have that consideration again? Um, you, you didn't always write. As we mentioned at the start, you've had multiple jobs. I've had
9: a lot of jobs. I think, as I say, life is there to be filled, Oliver. But I wrote a lot until children came along. And lots of people will probably empathise. They Mm. take all your creative juices. You have 20 (laughs) years or so to raise them. And then I had the chance again.
1: But your first child came along when you were young yourself.
9: Yes, I was a single parent, uh, 18 years old in Belfast. We used to cycle around. Belfast, I would have been at university and then I actually progressed to a motorbike and we got a little oh, really? sissy rack on the back and my two-year-old, when I look back now when I think, what did I do? You were really cool. We snooped about Belfast, it was some crack.
1: Did you have to leave Belfast when you became pregnant?
9: I did, yes, I had to go over to Carlisle. In those days it wasn't the done thing. Don't know if it's no. the done thing now, to be honest, but I didn't ah, much Ah, did you we were much better
1: at that. For, for ah, but sure. It, it
9: opens your, your eyes, I'd never been to Carlisle. Lovely spot.
1: And what did you discover there as a your teenage mum?
9: I was, yes. They they made us do meals on wheels. If you remember, that used to be a wee van that went around for old people. So who made you do? The people that put us up, as single parents, you see, when okay. you were homeless or you hadn't somewhere to live this organization life, took okay. you, put you in a safe home and give you employment, gainful for employment.
1: Goodness. So this wasn't a religious
9: No, no, thing? no, okay. no. It was just, I suppose, born out of necessity.
1: Yeah. But a fantastic experience. You. Yeah. And and your child and you were able to
9: Yes, absolutely. No, I came back when the baby was born. She's fantastic now. She's 34 and a wonderful woman altogether. But yeah, um, everything I've done so far and uh, everything I plan to do is all going to be part of the essence of one life. You've got to get it all in there. I
0: get busy living. Advice there from writer Roisin Maguire, who was talking to Oliver Callum this morning about her new novel, Night Swimmers. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The program was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programs featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.